I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 24th, 2013. Coming up, fairies and Victorian science. And Audubon Society experts will discuss the science behind Audubon's Christmas bird count and how residents like you, kids and adults alike, really do make a difference. begin with a couple recent headlines in science. It's been decades since parents of children with autism first reported an increase in symptoms when a child was exposed to stresses, such as contracting a virus, taking antibiotics, eating foods that disrupt gut health, and more. While most scientists later dismissed these claims, some wondered whether stressors might trigger a leaky gut. That's where damage to the intestinal tract allows undigested proteins into the bloodstream, triggering inflammation. A new study in the journal Cell describes how curing leaky gut in lab mice reduced symptoms of autism. In the study, researchers gave autistic mice a probiotic. In this case, it wasn't yogurt. It was the human gut microbe, Bacterioides fragilis. B. fragilis is known to improve gut health, which it did for the mice. They then became less anxious and more social. Whether B. fragilis might be a magic bullet against human autism is hard to say, but in a commentary in Cell, CU Boulder scientists Dorada Porozinska, Sophie Weiss, and Rob Knight write that improving gut health helps autism, depression, and schizophrenia. The CU researchers conclude the following. Therapies that target our microbial side may hold the key to making progress against a wide range of notoriously difficult psychiatric illnesses. Got a great idea that'll spark kids' curiosity about science? If so, you could win up to $50,000. No small change. The Society for Science and the Public, which publishes the magazines Science News and Science News for Students, recently launched a new science competition in collaboration with the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. The Society is looking for ideas, especially prototype kits, that can engage kids as young as eight and spark their interest in how and why the world works. In fact, the competition is called SPARK. That's short for Science, Play, and Research Kit. It encourages entrants to create new tools that tap into the spirit of classic chemistry. Entrants can be elementary or middle school, high school teachers, professors, digital developers, makers, graduate students, and many other science enthusiasts. The deadline to apply is January 7th, 2014. It's open to all U.S. residents over the age of 18. The top prize for the best science kit prototype is indeed $50,000. Other prizes will be given up to runners-up. For more information about the Spark competition, go to www.reimaginechemset.org. (laughs) 
You're listening to KGNU, Sao on Earth. I'm Jim Pullen. On Christmas Eve, we thought it would be fun to peer back into the not-too-distant past to learn how Victorian educators used a magical world to teach their young pupils. Dr. Melanie Keene is an expert in science for children in the 19th century. She's a fellow at Homerton College, Cambridge. Dr. Keene just published a paper on fairies and teaching science in the journal Nature this past week. Merry Christmas, Melanie. Are you with us, Melanie? Merry Christmas, Melanie. Are you with us? Hello, Melanie. Are you with us? Hello. Oh, hello. Hello. Hi. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You know, it takes a long time for the fairies to carry the message across the Atlantic, regardless how magical they are. (laughs) Well, Melanie. To borrow Santa's sleigh, I think. Oh, is that right? Well, Santa yeah. is a bit of a fairy, they say, isn't he? I mean, or an elf. Yeah, I guess. It must, yeah. it must be elves, pretty. Yeah. An elf. <laughs> there are different things. Well, we'll ha- we'll have to hear about that. But, <laughs> Melanie, I I, uh, I teach physics, and sometimes when I look back at the physics a hundred years ago, I'm a little bit astounded how somewhat different even physicists' view of the world was than our own uh, kind of current view. And it makes me wonder about the Victorian scientific world. Was it so remarkably different from ours that fairies held a special place? Um, I think lots of the sciences in the Victorian period are really exciting because it's the first time they're getting to know about some of these parts of nature. For instance, it's the first time they start digging up dinosaur skeletons. It's the first time they do new kinds of chemistry. Um, so I think it is a bit of a different world, and they haven't quite got our sense of things. Um, the fairies, I think, have a particular place, particularly in the work I look at, and that's is making science exciting for children. And um, I know that there were some Victorian scientists who even believed in fairies, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle famously believed, I think, in fairies. And so uh, maybe it ran a little deeper for some. Yeah, well, so um, one children's author, a woman called Arabella Buckley, she wrote probably the best known of these children's fairy science books. It's called The Fairyland of Science. And she was really interested in spiritualism as well. Um, So for her, I think, talking about fairies as the forces of nature was a way to think about how these spirits acted in the world as well. Well, you know, that's really, that's really, really interesting. Mm. Her book, Buckley's book, I've read a wee bit of it. And mm. uh, in her introduction, she talks about the magical world of science, but she introduces it uh, as being kind of related to the fairy world. Uh, tell, us, tell us about how she introduces her book and, and what her book's about. Uh, so Buckley's book is based on lectures that she actually gave to children in London. And you can see that in the way the book's written. It's very much as if she's giving an introductory talk on a subject. And she really uses everyday objects that the children would already know about and teaches them about the hidden science within. So for Buckley, she says that fairyland isn't somewhere else. In fact, fairyland is already all around you. And the way to get to fairyland is by learning about science. How did she reconcile? Well, when she talks about later on in her lectures um, or her chapters, mm. she talks about the different sorts of science. She talks about a water drop, for example, but she doesn't really invoke fairies at that point, does she? 
No, so um, for Buckley, she has the sort of everyday explanations of what happens, for instance, um, in the growth of a primrose. Um, so that's one of her chapters, is introducing botany and she uses a primrose. And really she takes the young listener or reader through different aspects of uh, growing from a seed, how the plant makes its own um, food, all of these sort of basic botany facts. Um, and then it's really only in her explanatory comparisons that she brings in fairy tales. So, for instance, she, compare, she compares a seed to Sleeping Beauty, um, just waiting to be awoken by the sunlight when it gets kissed. Um, but it's at the sort of next level where she brings in the fairies, and they tend to be equated with the, the forces of nature um, or as ways of talking about things that we can't see. Uh, so gravity, for instance, she talks about as if it's a giant. Mm, that's lovely. And this is a book for children? Mm, yes. Um, these are Often these kinds of books were given as Christmas presents. Um, so there's sort of quite nice pictures, nice covers with sort of that old-fashioned gold and green covers on them. Um, but usually these are books for children who at the time weren't learning that much science at school. Um, it's really something that they learn a lot about on their own time in school holidays. And that's another reason, I think, why these books are very much based around objects you can find in your kitchen or in your garden. A little later, uh, others wrote books that invoked fairies more in an explanatory role uh, through pictures. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Uh, so one fantastic example of this is an American author. So Buckley was a, a British author. Uh, but Lucy Ryder Mayer, um, who wrote a book called Real Fairy Folks, Explorations in the World of Atoms. Uh, she was an American. She was a Methodist. So again, she had a very particular religious view on this world. Um, and she wrote a book in which uh, the fairies were the chemical elements. So a different strategy there. Well, uh, tell us, uh, give us an example. Um, so for instance, um, she talks about particular groups of elements as if they are cousins of fairies um, and their particular chemical properties were very much portrayed in both how the fairies were drawn and also how they behaved. So, for instance, to make a water molecule, you would have, and she has in the book, a picture of a water fairy holding hands with two hydrogen fairies. And the chemical explanation there is that uh, water needs to bond with two hydrogen atoms in order to make, sorry, oxygen needs to bond with two hydrogen atoms in order to make the water molecule. So she has to have both hands full. So that's a nice example, I think, of that. Yeah, indeed. And, and, these, and these lovely pictures in this book, uh, they really, uh, the shape of the wings and the way they're holding hands, it all kind of uh, is to a purpose, isn't it? Oh, definitely. So these authors, are, they're really excited about this new science, all of these new discoveries that are happening. They think it's really important that children know about it, but they really, above all, want to um, convey accurate information. They've all had scientific training, both informally or formally, and they really want to communicate the most up-to-date knowledge as possible. And so everything there is for a purpose and is really in line with the leading thinking of the day. 
Well, we have about a minute left. M- Melanie, tell us, um, when did fairies fall out of favor in science? Because I, I rather wish they'd come back and make some of these dry tomes a little bit uh, easier to digest. I think fairies themselves get a little bit less fashionable. So in the late 19th century, lots and lots of fairy books. Um, by the sort of early 20th century, it's not so fashionable anymore. And I think by the sort of 1930s, you don't find these kind of things anymore. It would be nice if they could come back. I agree with you. Well, let's let's bring them back. That's what I say. Well, thank, we thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, Professor Melanie Keene at Homerton College, Cambridge. She's writing a book, Science in Wonderland, for Oxford University Press. Thank you, and Merry Christmas, Melanie. Merry Christmas, Jim. It was great to talk to you. Bye. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. It's the time of year when many humans are flying hither and yon to gather with family for Christmas. Others are heading somewhere south for vacation to escape the winter chill here in Colorado. Well, if you've looked up in the sky lately, you know that many birds are on the move as well. Many have already headed south to overwinter in warmer climates, but others are sticking around. These human and avian patterns are converging in what's called the Audubon Society's Christmas Bird Count. From November 14th through January 5th, many thousands of volunteer citizen scientists throughout the Americas take part in what's become actually a family tradition. To discuss why Audubon holds the bird count and how it helps advance science, we have in the studio two experts from the Audubon Society. One is Steve Jones, the other is Bill Schmoker. Steve is president of the Boulder County Audubon Society, and he's co-author of the Peterson Field Guide to North American Prairie and another book, Wild Boulder County. Bill Schmoker is actually a science teacher here in Boulder, and he coordinates the Christmas bird count. Steve and Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Good to see you. So, Bill, um, what were we just listening to? We just heard a northern flicker. And I, I thought that would be a fun one to start with. It almost sounds exotic and jungly, but that's one of the most commonly, bird, uh, commonly seen and heard birds we get on the Boulder Christmas count. Really? So what about the broader front range? Is it pretty common throughout? Absolutely. Uh, people look out in their backyard. That's one of the most likely flicker, uh, woodpeckers to see is the flicker. And it's uh, a little different than a lot of woodpeckers in that you'll often see it pecking around on the ground. Most, most woodpeckers like to stay up in trees. And certainly flickers will be in trees, but if you see a woodpecker-looking bird grabbing ants, that's, uh, that's your best bet. A different niche for everyone. So, um, Bill, maybe starting with you as well, what, what precipitated the Christmas bird count? Because it's now in, what, its 117th year? Yeah, yeah. The Christmas bird count uh, actually began as an alternative to a, a rather barbaric tradition called the side hunt. And uh, on Christmas Day, maybe after the morning festivities, uh, typically the, the gentlemen and boys would head out in teams and basically hunt everything they could, <laughs> uh, pile it up and see whose pile was the biggest. So as the conservation uh, movement really got underway in 1900, uh, the first Christmas count was set out to, instead of shooting birds, to just see them and count them. Was it heretical at the time? <laughs> I, I don't know. Steve, do you know how that, that flew with tradition? I think it was a uh, a movement that was really growing strongly in North America. 
the Audubon Society had been organized, and I think it had a lot of momentum right from the beginning. Although here in Boulder, I think we had two participants in our first Christmas bird count in 1909, and this year about 120 participants. Yeah, we're going to be well over 100 this year, so we're, we're moving it in the right direction. Yeah. So did it actually begin then as a attempt to reverse the momentum of hunting and or to really advance science through community you know, resident participation? I suspect uh, the, the former. I, I think the, the realizing this was good data for conservation and, and looking at trends didn't happen until later, uh, particularly as the Christmas count took hold and kept going and kept going and spread out across the, the continent. That I think other people realized, you know, this is, isn't just fun and neat to go see birds. It's telling us something about the birds. And maybe, um, Steve, what are some of the things it's actually telling us? Maybe not over the whole course of the 117 years, but uh, well, recent. It, what, what it, sort it of really shifts? does. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, it was the Christmas bird counts that first showed the sharp decline in populations of brown pelicans and peregrine falcons in North America. And it was after that that scientists realized that DDT was killing off our uh, brown pelicans and peregrine falcons. Um, more recently, it's beginning to track some changes. But, well, urbanization is, I think, maybe the biggest tra- change it's tracking in North America. So housing development, uh, industry, here, here in Boulder County, the, the two biggest trends, I think, were reservoir construction, which has allowed lots of uh, waterfowl to winter in Boulder County, especially out by the coal plant, the XL coal plant where they release warm water and keep open water all winter. But another is this tree island effect where we're getting uh, sort of the eastern deciduous forest moving into the west. We get a lot of birds now that are what we call urban adapted generalists. Uh, The flicker is one of them, actually, Mm -hmm. although it's native to here. Uh, Canada goose is another. uh, Birds like starlings and even cardinals now in Boulder. Speaking of those, um, Jim, can we play another? How about the uh, Canada geese? Yeah, Canada geese were um, pretty rare here, I think. I, I, I don't think they were counted in 1909 on that count. Okay. That's a pretty familiar one. I love they're, they're beautiful, and people can argue about whether these are good or bad trends. Um, the fact is that many of our grassland specialists are in real trouble in Boulder County. Horned lark would have been a bird that would have been pretty abundant, I think, Bill. Yeah, horned lark was one of the few birds on the 1909 count. I, I think they had like 20, 25 species. Uh, and is it that they've lost much of the grassland habitat or so fragmented? Exactly. There's just less and less uh, habitat within the circle now. Horned lark is probably doing pretty well statewide. Um, we've got a lot of habitat for them, but the count circle is very restricted. It's only a seven and a half mile uh, radius circle centered in the middle of Boulder. So if you imagine in 1909, there would have been a lot more open ground than there is now within that, that circle. Right. So actually take us to, so you just mentioned this one circle. There are a gazillion mm-hmm. throughout the U.S. What about throughout Colorado? Because they are actually going on through right. early yeah, January, right? I, I didn't come with the actual number, but I'm guessing in the 20s or low 30s, uh, certainly a few mm. dozen counts throughout Colorado. And so just describe the, when you're there, let's say I'm, right. I'm going to volunteer, what do you actually do? Yeah, so on a count like Boulder Count, it's big. We have over 30 territories, with each with their own leader, and they, they kind of set the day's plan to cover as much habitat and ground as they can. 
Uh, some counts may be a lot like our first count, with just a few people uh, trying to hit as much as they can in this gigantic circle. But uh, it, there's a lot of camaraderie. It's, it's a tradition that I think a lot of birders look forward to, to get together, see what they can, maybe gather back for lunch to compare notes midday, head back out to try to find stuff that's been missed. And well, then, so it sounds like a lot of fun, and it sounds, I mean, you're dealing with, needless to say, moving targets. So how the heck do you count them <laughs> Reliably, oh, Steve, we, we do our best to estimate. Yeah, there's no way you'd have to fl- throw a net over all of Boulder <laughs> County to do that. But uh, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is uh, we welcome volunteers on these counts. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be an expert. In fact, the experts tend to bird by ear and they're listening all the time. Mm-hmm. The volunteers who are not so experienced tend to see things flying by that some of us would have missed. So we have all levels of expertise and all ages. I think uh, our youngest counters this year were probably about eight or nine. Is that right, Bill? Yep. And our oldest were probably in their 80s. Yeah. Let's play one more. How about the uh, that delicate Townsend solitaire? That sounds so. Spring-like to me. Yeah, I, I hoped we could hear that because certainly, in comparison with some spring or even summer birding counts, where you hear a lot of singing birds, uh, winter—that's not usually the case. But Townsend solitaire loves to sing, in the, even in the winter. And so, speaking of the winter, why is the count done now when they're overwintering? Are they? many have left as opposed to breeding season. Steve? Well, it's just this tradition that we we have the data now going back to the late 19th century, and it's continued. And we have now these counts all over um, North and South America. For example, you can go to La Selva, Costa Rica, and do a Christmas bird count. And there you'll see 400 species, not the 100 that we get in Boulder. And um, so it's a tradition. But we also have summer counts. They're called the North American Breeding Bird Survey. And people can volunteer for that as well. And just have time for um, a couple more. One I'm curious about, I mean, we hear, as you alluded to, habitat fragmentation, Mm -hmm. urbanization, maybe less measurable climate change. But what are some positive examples of of change in terms of population count and habitat in recent years? Bill? Well, I'll speak to one that certainly birders and non-birders alike enjoy around Boulder, and that's bald eagles. Uh, it's very hard to miss if you spend the day around Boulder now in the winter. In fact, you can see multiple bald eagles, and that certainly during the, the bad times with DDT was not the case. You know, historically in Boulder, uh, we've only lost four or five of our 180 breeding species in Boulder County, and I think four of those were lost before 1900. Mm-hmm. We're facing a next wave of extirpations in Boulder County, and there are prairie species that are in jeopardy because of all the urbanization and the invasion of trees. But it's amazing to see the constancy. My area is El Dorado Mountain for the Boulder Christmas bird count, and we've seen very few trends in the last 25 years. You see the same birds year after year, and most of our bird populations are doing pretty well here. Huh? Well, that's good to hear. Well, so um, as the Christmas count is continuing, you can go to, well, just Google Audubon Christmas yeah. Bird Count and see how you can get involved. So thank you both so much for coming on the show. That was Steve Jones and Bill Schmoker of the Audubon Society. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. 
Beth Bartell is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mozart. And thanks to Eric DeFonso and the Audubon Society for the bird audio. Can't, uh, can't go wrong with Mozart. And if you can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time, no worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.